So we are in the third week of a series that we started to begin uh, the month of April. The series is titled Living Beyond the Grave. And we started off with, with two specific prayers, two simple prayers. The first prayer is to, that the Lord would make us aware and beware of a Christianity where Jesus does all the dying. Right? We love to come in today, especially on Easter, and thank God for dying, that he died on the cross for us, that he took our sins for us. I heard my, my little boy Nate up here saying that he loved us so much that the Father sent the Son and that he died. However, we need to beware of a Christianity where he does all the dying and we don't have to do anything, right? So as we started this Living Beyond the Grave series, we said there's some dying that we have to do. There's some things that we have to lay down as we continue to follow Christ. The second prayer is that we would beware of a Christianity where he does all the living beyond the grave, right? So we come, we worship, we pray, he rose from the dead, and he lives, right? The kids sang their song, and my, my son, my little one, I don't know what he was doing, taking off his shirt, I had to <laughs> calm him down a little bit. But what they were singing was, God's not dead, he's surely alive. We can't just say that, we have to believe that, right? That he died, but he rose, and now he lives beyond the grave, right? He's still alive, active, moving, doing something, and that's what it should be like in the life of a Christian, right? We need to be living beyond the grave, beyond the things that we laid down. When we first started this series, we had this, this uh, imagery that I tried to, to put before people, is that on this side of the grave, when people try to find life, it, it inevitably ends in death, and there's nothing good after that. Then you have the grave itself where God says, you have to lay your life down. Nobody can put you into the grave. You have to lay your life down, right? So we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'll lay my life down that I would be able to be saved, to be forgiven. But beyond the grave, there's more life to be living. And there's so many Christians that stop here. It's one thing to come to the Lord. Thank God for that. But if you don't live beyond the grave, you don't live in your newness of life, you don't live with joy and contentment and receiving the blessings of God, you've stopped short. So our prayer is that the believers would live beyond the grave. The reason the series is titled Living Beyond the Grave is we're not just looking at Easter. We can look with a wide-angle lens and look all the way back to the beginning of the work of God, the creation of man. We can look back there, and we can look further on into eternity. There will be a time where none of us will have any conceptual idea of the grave. We won't even know what a grave is. It won't make sense to us. There will not be a word. There will not be a place in our heart that remembers a grave because we'll be so full of life. Living beyond the grave is not just about Easter. All over the world this morning, though, people are asking the question that matters most. What do we do with Jesus? Who is he? A lot of people woke up this morning and said, I'm going to go to church. A lot of people woke up this morning and said, thank God that I'm going to be able to have a picnic, but I don't really know God. But people are asking the question, it's the most important question. Who is Jesus? There's no doubt, definitely in the faith community, nobody doubts that he existed. In the secular world, right, the people that don't believe in God, they do believe and know that Jesus walked on the earth. It's not a myth. It's not something that uh, faithful people made up, right? He was a man. He lived. He walked on the earth 2,000 years ago and died. It's a fact. This book that we have here, the Bible, it's amazing, and it tells us some things about this Jesus. It says that he went around healing. The question I have for you this morning, though, is why? Why did he heal? This book will tell us that he went around uh, declaring that he had power over nature, right? Calming the seas, 
calming storms, walking on water. On Wednesday, we talked about him telling a fig tree, you have no figs on you, and he cursed the tree, and it withered away right there in the moment. It tells us that he did these things, but why? This book, this Bible tells us that Jesus declared that there is a heavenly realm where angels and demons really exist, not just uh, in the movies, not just this idea for good and evil, but they're real and they exist. And he talked about it and he, and he spoke about it. But why? Everything Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, was to prepare hearts and minds for a coming kingdom. Right? We love to focus on all the good things that he did, all the power that he showed, but if we don't know why he did those things, it's all for naught. He did it to prepare your heart and my heart. He did it to prepare your mind and my mind for a coming kingdom. Jesus first began to preach and teach. It's amazing. We have all, all of the scriptures, and we know who he is, and we sing and we cry. We do those things. In the scriptures, you, you meet him at his birth, then you see him when he's 12 for just an instant, and then you see him at like 30 years old and beginning a ministry. God's, God's word, I hope I can, God's word is not to answer every single question you have about every single thing. God's word is to declare who Jesus is and what God's plan for you and for me is. Just enough is what he gives us. When he started preaching, listen to what Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says. It says, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Say kingdom. And healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So this is the picture that it paints. Jesus begins his ministry, 30 plus years old. And it says that he goes to the church and he starts preaching and teaching about what? How to have a better life how to feel better about yourself, how to be healthy, how to hold a marriage together. No, it says that he began to preach and teach about the kingdom. And then it says that he went around touching and healing people. So the picture that it paints is all of the healing, all of the power, all the things that Jesus did was to give you confirmation about what he was saying. Does that make sense to anybody this morning? When he's going to tell you there's a kingdom, when he's going to tell you that there's a life after death, when he's going to tell you that he's going to die and then resurrect, you would not believe that unless you saw what he was capable of doing here on this planet. The focus should be the kingdom, not the blessings and the power that he has. When we come into church, we should be focused on the king and not the gifts that he has for his servants. So this healing that takes place in the lives of Christians today is similar to the healing that he was doing uh, when he was on the earth, right? We get healed, we get delivered, we get set free, right? Addicts are set free. Those who, are, who are, are in bondage to whatever that particular sin or that group of sins might be, when we get set free from those things and we see the power of God, it's a testimony, not that God can fix other people's lives, but that there's a kingdom to come. So here's the first part of the question that Easter answers. Why did Jesus have to come, and why did he have to die? From the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. You passed, some of you. God begins to foreshadow the death of Jesus. Adam and Eve fall into sin. They realize that they're naked. They go to the, to the local H&M and grab some fig leaves, and they sew them on 
to themselves, right? They sew them together and they, and they place them to cover themselves, to cover their sin, to cover their shame, right? Genesis 3, 21 says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve want to cover themselves with fig leaves because they're ashamed, because they're embarrassed, because now they know right and wrong and they know they've done wrong and they don't want to be seen as somebody who has sin and somebody who's wrong and they begin to hide from God. When God comes in, he says, you're right, you do need to be covered, but there will be bloodshed for your covering. You don't get to use fig leaves off of a tree. I'm going to have to kill something. Somebody, something is going to have to die and shed its blood that we can use its skin to cover you and to cover your, your sin. That's the beginning of the Bible that leads to this, that leads to our destiny. God's been foreshadowing it and trying to get us to understand that somebody has to die. Beware of a Christianity where Jesus does all the dying. So then he kicks them out of the garden. He says, not because I don't love you, not because I don't want you, but you got to get out of here. And what did it say in the scripture in Genesis? It said, because what they're going to do is eat of the tree of life and live forever. I don't want them to live forever while they're sinners while they're covered with a substandard skin and covering. I don't want them to live forever carrying that burden of sin, so they've got to get out of here. There will come a time, though, where they'd be able to come back in and live forever and live beyond the grave. So many of us begin to ask God, if you're so good, why is my life so hard? If God loves me so much, why is it so difficult? Why do good people die? Why do the evil seem to get ahead? Why is it that nothing ever seems to turn out the way that I expect it to turn out? Why haven't you done something, God? You see the evil. You see Christians in their churches being blown up. You see kids being raped. You see them sold into slavery. God, we know that you're aware of these things. Why aren't you doing something? You must not be real. Listen to God's answer. In Hebrews chapter 37, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 37. It's talking about Christians who suffer says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. I love how God says that. The world wasn't worthy of these men and women who were faithful. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, they did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, say us, say me. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. God says this, from the first sin, Adam and Eve, and that separation, those who have come to faith from that day to the day that we are presently in, God says, I'm restraining myself from causing an end to everything because I'm waiting for more of you to come to me. He's waiting on us. The reason why sin remains and the reason why evil is uh, prevalent in this world, it's not because God doesn't care. It's because he cares so much about you and I. He's waiting for us. It says they cannot be made perfect aside from us. I remember when I gave my life to Jesus. October 21st, 2004. And uh, I remember specifically feeling like I had escaped hell. 
Because once you realize that sin is real and hell is real, you know you're going there. You confront like you don't know, but you know. And I knew that that's where I was headed. And I remember when, when I gave my life to the Lord and I felt confirmation that he saved me, I was like, I cannot believe I escaped hell. And you know what the very next thought in my, in my head and my heart was? Thank God he waited. Thank God he waited. Because if he had been just a week earlier, if he had to put an end to sin just a week earlier, I'd be damned to hell forever. And then I see the love of God. I see the suffering of people. I see the way that I treated Christians before I became one. I see what we go through now. But I understand it's because of the love of God. Not that he doesn't care. Not that he's unaware. What he's doing is he's giving us an opportunity to come to him. So each and every one of us are somewhere between Adam and Eve at the beginning. And we're somewhere between the very end when he says, that's it. Too little, too late for anybody that didn't come to me. We're somewhere in between there, so we're going to call us the middle. At the end, this is what it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he'll dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Listen to this. At the end, heaven and earth will pass away, and they'll be what? Born again. There'll be a new one. If you've never read through Revelation because you are probably scared or, or it's complicated, this is a beautiful thing to consider, that there's going to be a new one with no more pain, no more sorrow. But that will be the day that, that sin and evil is done away with. That'll be the day that suffering and difficulty, trials, tribulations, right, are done away with. Not now. Right now we're called to be faithful. We're called to come to him. We're called to tell others about his love. The Bible essentially tells one story, and that story is about God, who he is, who we are, the truth about his kingdom, and how citizenship is obtained only through death. That's it. You get saved now, the rest of your Christianity, that's what you're going to hear about. You've been saved for 50 years, that's what you hear about. It's who God is, who you are, right, the kingdom that exists, and how to obtain citizenship that you would be able to live there and dwell there forever. It's only through death. There's no other entrance. You don't get a hookup. You don't get to call somebody that already is inside and say, hey, can you open the back door for me? I know none of you used to do that, pay for one movie ticket and then somebody hook you up. But that's not, that's not how it works in the kingdom. The kingdom is real. It exists. You're either going to spend eternity there or eternity somewhere else, and the only way to enter in is through death. Remember, beware of a Christianity where Jesus is the one that does all the dying. That's not real Christianity. So the first part of the question Easter answers is, why did Jesus have to come and why did he have to die? The second part of the question is, why did he have to rise? I think we understand the fact that he had to come, he had to die, fig leaves are not enough, feeling bad is not enough, being sorry is not enough. 
right? Somebody has to do the dying. Somebody has to pay the penalty for that sin. So we know he had to come, and we know that he had to die. But why did he have to rise? Beware of a Christianity where Jesus does all the living beyond the grave. So Jesus is talking to a group of believers that believed in God, but they did not believe in the resurrection. The scripture is Mark chapter 12, verse 26. So so if you talk to people about your faith, you might come across people like this. Oh, I believe in God, but I'm not really into the whole Jesus thing. I believe in a higher power, but I I don't believe that anybody's ever resurrected. Is it good enough just to believe that there's a higher power? Is it good enough just to believe that somebody created you? No, you have to believe what he says about who he is. So this group that he's talking to, and Jesus cares about them, so he's going to tell them the truth because he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Mark 12, 26 says, concerning the dead, he's talking to them, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Jesus is talking to these church folks that don't believe in the resurrection. He says, don't you read? Don't you understand what I've said since eternity passed with Adam and Eve when they were created? I've been telling you. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. There is a resurrection, whether you believe in it or not. You know the best thing about truth is that it's true whether you believe it or not. Right? There's so many things that I just didn't understand. It doesn't matter if you don't understand. It doesn't matter if you don't believe it. If it's true, it's true. Two plus two is four. I'm sure some of you uh, went much further than that in math, and I can't understand what you know, but you know what? You know, and it's true. Whether I believe it or I understand it does not matter. Jesus says, you may not believe in the resurrection. You may not understand how I can rise. You may not understand how you will rise one day, but you better believe this. It's true. You'll come to experience one way or another. Believe me, you want to experience it in the new heaven and the new earth. You don't want to experience it in the other place. So here's the picture. Everyone will live beyond the grave. God's waiting for all that are going to be coming to faith. They'll be perfected at the same time. When it's talking about those that died in the faith during suffering, that didn't receive the promises, he's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Isaac. He's talking about Jacob. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about Mary. He's talking about all these men and women who lived and died. He's talking about all of his disciples, right? They won't be perfected aside from us. When the last believer comes in, we'll all be perfected together. But there's another group of people that are going to be preparing for eternity in hell. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. If you don't make it to heaven, please don't be praying for, for darkness and eternal sleep because that ain't true. It tells you both sides of what to expect. Then we'll be able to eat of the tree of life, right? And we can live forever. We'll be separated from our sin. We'll be forgiven for all that sin. We'll be able to live in a place with a new body without the curse of sin. It's a real place. It's a real life. And it is not clouds and harps. Some people say, I don't want to go to heaven because we're just going to sit there and we're going to be floating on the clouds and playing harps. If God created this place for man and he said, it's for you and you have dominion and it's a real life and it's a physical place and there's taste and there's touch and there's experience, what makes you think that heaven is not going to be the best version of this? Better get with it. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. 
There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine living, uh, linen. He fared sumptuously every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you, they cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. It's real. It's a real place. Because those in faith have died and will not be perfected until the last come to faith and perfected together, that means that there is a place where people wait. This rich man and Lazarus are in that place. And it says that he's there, he's tormented, he's fully aware. He's burning from the inside out. And he says, listen, I just want a, a, a drop of water. And Abraham says, look, even if we wanted to, we can't get to you, you can't get to us. You made your decision about which one you're going to enter into when you made your decision about Jesus. And then listen to what he says. Well, what about a resurrection? Now the dead that are tormented are saying, well, what about a resurrection? Let's send uh, Lazarus, or excuse me, let's send the poor man back. Lazarus, let's send him back. Let him rise from the dead and go tell my family so they don't end up here. And listen to what Abraham says, because a lot of people don't believe this. He says... Resurrection will not save them. Moses and the prophets, the word of God, will be where they find their salvation. How many people are waiting for a miracle? How many people are waiting to see Jesus? How many people are waiting? There's only a few people that got to see him rise from the dead, but look how many have come to faith. Why? Because it's the word of God that leads to faith. It's not miraculous things happening. We've all had miraculous things happen to us when we were sinners. How'd you get home? Knowing you can't drive. Knowing you're tore up. Knowing you deserve death, but you live. How'd you have anything? Miracles don't, don't change people. Receiving the word of God changes people. Romans 10, 17 puts it like this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When we ask, you know, in, in preparation for this, for this service and this sermon, you know, we do a Wednesday night Bible study. We have the youth on Wednesday night. We have women's Bible. We have all these things going on. It's like, man, sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we get weary. You know, maybe we should stop doing this, stop doing that. And you know what? I, I was just reminded this week, the one thing we can never stop doing is preaching the word of God. We can stop the outings. We can stop the golf. We can stop taking food to the home. We can stop everything. But what we cannot stop is hearing the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how you get saved. 
I remember sitting in a church for six months unsaved, still getting high every day, right? Still sinning, still fornicating, still doing everything that I was doing before, and nothing had changed. But I was still going to church, chasing after this young lady. Good thing Jesus tripped her up for me. But one day, I told you, it was October 21st, 2004, everything changed. But now when I look back, what I believe is there was six months of faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not by accident that, that I gave my life to the Lord. It was seed being planted, seed being watered. Even though I wasn't the one watering it, even though I didn't want it to grow, you cannot stop the power of the word of God. When we tell people, just go to church, just go to church, it's not because the building is somehow powerful. It's not because just by showing up, something is going to happen to you and God's going to do a miracle. No, it's because that's the place you'll hear the word of God. I don't know about the rest of you, but I wasn't listening to Christian radio back then. I wasn't calling somebody saying, can you tell me what the word of God means? This was the only place I was hearing it once or twice a week, and God used that. So at this point, this is what we know. God has a plan. We know that the Bible tells one story that declares death is the penalty for sin. We know that accepting the substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins is the only way for men and women to be reconciled to God. Listen, there are not multiple ways. There's one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, which means anybody else. It could be the best person you know. It could be Gandhi. It could be Mother Teresa. If they have not come to Jesus, they end up in room number two. In this world, when someone is so guilty that no amount of time is sufficient to pay for their crimes, what are they given? Life sentence, right? If they're so guilty, if the crime is so egregious, right, they're given one of two options. Either they're, they're, they're put to death or they're given a life sentence. They say, the, the crime is so bad, we're going to give you life. You're never getting out. And then we give them multiple life sentences, double life or triple life. What does that mean? Yet we do it, right? God says that any sin, say any sin, any sin against the perfect love of God, against the perfect grace of God, against unlimited Freedom from God, if you think about who God is and what he's given us, he says, I love you perfectly. I have grace upon you sufficiently. And he says, I give you liberality. You can do whatever you want. That's why, because his love is so good, it's any sin. It's not the worst sins. It's not like the sins that you can't even think of and, and, and you hide from. Or like, if you're like me, when I see certain things on, on TV or hear a news story, I turn it off because my heart just can't deal with it. My heart can't deal with a man walking into a school and killing a woman and then killing an eight-year-old child. I can't deal with that. It's not just those sins. It's lying. It's stealing. It's cheating because of the perfect love of God. He says, any sin that you commit deserves a life sentence and eternity in hell to pay for it. Many of us used to think if, you're, if your good outweighs your bad, if you do a lot of good things, if you begin to change, that it's going to work out. It's not going to work out one single sin. Because of the perfect love of God is too much. Death does not allow us to escape judgment. Death is just the beginning of it. Can you imagine a world where the guilty, molesters, rapists, right, murderers, can you imagine a world where those people who are guilty but never get caught never have to pay? 
How many rapists are out there? How many molesters are out there? How many murders are out there that never, have never been caught? You think they're not going to pay for that? You think God is not going to allow them or make them pay for that? Yet you and I think that our sins don't have to be paid for. No matter how big or no matter how small they are, they've got to be paid for. So we begin to see this is why Jesus had to come. This is how much God really loves us. We know the scripture. What's, what's the most famous scripture that everybody quotes, everybody knows, that talks about the love of God? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's so good, but there's a 17th verse. <laughs> so good. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. It's one thing to say, oh, you love us so much and you came and you came to save us. But the next part says, look, you're already condemned. Everybody. If you believe in him, you're set free. That condemnation is gone. But if you don't, don't think that something additional has to happen. Everybody's already guilty. I'm going to ask my son to explain it again. He said because of Adam and Eve, we're all born into this. We're already guilty and condemned. We don't have to tell people what they already know. What I've learned in reading the scriptures, the Bible says that we all have knowledge of who God is and we all have knowledge of our sin. So you're not hearing something new when a pastor or somebody tells you that you're a sinner. You already know. You may want to fight against it like I wanted to do, but we already know. We don't have to tell people they're condemned. They know. So we finally, hopefully, see the beauty and the love of God in his death and resurrection to forgive us. So we cry out for salvation. Lord, save us. Help us. Forgive us. Do something. Leads us again, though, to the question, why does he have to rise? Why does he have to rise? Dying should be enough. Us acknowledging our sin should be enough. 1 Corinthians 15, 16. Paul says, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. Right? Remember that story about, about Abraham and the, and the poor beggar? What this says is if Christ doesn't rise, he's dead. He's already perished. That place doesn't exist. That ain't real. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. I love it. Because that's what I used to say to Christians. Man, you're pitiful. Why would you go there every week? Why would you give money to that place? Why do you read that book? I feel so bad for you that you need a crutch. And Paul says the same thing. He says, if there's no resurrection, if he doesn't rise and we're just praising a dead guy that did some good things and tried to help us, he says, we're pitiful. The resurrection is important. Somebody say amen. But now Christ is risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive, but each one in his order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. This is a good book. I'm telling you, it's good. If Christ doesn't rise, we're still in our sins. We better love the resurrection. 
We better seek the risen one. Otherwise, you're still in your sins. We think we're covered and we think we're forgiven. Not with fig trees. It says that we have a greater sacrifice, the blood of the perfect one. But if he didn't rise, we're still in our sins. Nothing you've ever done has ever been forgiven. The second thing, if Christ doesn't rise, then death is not destroyed. Death has, listen, it's one thing for him to lay his life down, but if he doesn't rise, what that means is death had victory over the sinless one. If he doesn't rise, death had victory over the sinless one, which means there's no hope for us. But he's risen. That's the gospel. If you ever want to know what it is, right? It's the coming of the sinless one, it's the dying of the sinless one, and it's the resurrecting of the sinless one. That's the gospel. That's your hope. That's my hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Later on in the chapter, listen to what it says. Brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death will be defeated. It's the last of all enemies. It's the one that we fear the most. It's the one that has us raising hell and acting crazy because we know one day we're going to die. And something convinced us that that was going to be the end. So we say, I'm going to do everything I want to do right here, right now. But death is going to be conquered. We'll be freed from that. The Bible says to be dead to sin is to be alive to God. So here's the stories that are told in your Bible. God and Adam tell of a system with a rebellious son. Think about this for a second. God has a story about him and Adam, and it talks about a system that was put in place, but the son was rebellious. Anybody ever been rebellious? Raise your hands. I want to see. Anybody been rebellious? Look at y'all. Like right now, you're like, I ain't raising my hand. You think it'd be a great system. It's God. He loves us. The man he created, but it's rebellion. Abraham and Isaac tell of a system where the son, uh, instead of dying, was substituted, right? You get to the story. You've got Abraham. You've got Isaac. He goes up to the mountain. God says the same thing he's been telling all of us. Somebody has to die. There has to be blood. And right when he's about to kill his son, because that's what God told him to do, God stops him and he says, hey, I have a substitute for your son. There's a substitution. Then when you get to Moses, Moses tells a story of, of a man without a son in the story. He had children, he had sons, but they were not part of the story. You barely hear about their names. And there's a system in place with, with Moses and the people and deliverance, but there's no son. Then you get to the story of God the Father and God the Son. And this is a system with a son who is not rebellious, but fully committed and obedient. This is a system where the son is not substituted, but the son actually dies. And this is the only system that leads to life. God, again, is showing us how all through his word, you, you just keep saying, this won't work, that won't work, this won't work. This is the only way. I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. 
So I want to bring this message to a close. I want to focus on just one small portion of the actual Easter story. There's no way to cover it all, but it's the most beautiful story. I hope some of you got into your Bibles and read the red letters and read through the end of all your Gospels to, to hear about Easter. But if it's okay, can I, can I summarize it a little bit? Say amen. Jesus enters into the city, and he enters to praise. They're taking palm branches, and they're laying them down. They're taking their shirts off their back and throwing them on the donkeys that he's on. And he's, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, praising him, worshiping him as he comes into the city. He weeps over the city because he says, listen, if you only knew the time of your visitation, if you only know who I really am and what I really came to do, he spends a Passover week preaching and teaching in the actual church. So again, remember in the beginning of his ministry, it said he went to the church and preached the kingdom. At the end of his ministry, the last week, where does he go? What does he do? He goes back to the church and begins to tell them about the kingdom. He gets angry because the church is jacked up. He starts flipping tables over. One gospel says that he, he makes a, a whip of cords and starts whipping people. We're going to start that next week here. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. He said, you're supposed to be blessing people and giving, the things, giving them the things that I prepared for them, but you're taking from the people instead of giving to the people. Careful what church you go to. At the end of this, he has a Passover meal with his disciples, and it draws their attention back to Moses. The Passover literally means to be passed over. In the book of Exodus, it says that lambs had to die, and they took the blood and put it over their doorpost, and that the angel of death would come through, and anybody that wasn't covered in blood died. It's not new, guys. The story is the same story. And Jesus has the Passover with his disciples, and he's telling them, listen, I am the Passover lamb. It's my blood that has to cover you. Then he has communion with his disciples. Right. He takes the bread, he breaks it, says, this is my body, it's broken for you. This is my blood, it's shed for you. He says, listen, you have to take me all the way into you. It cannot be a superficial, close relationship where you come to church and you have a Bible and you know who I am. I have to be inside of you. It's the first time he's really telling his disciples how deep it has to go. You read John chapter 6, verse 66, 666, it says when he started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that people turned from him because they wanted to be close but not that close. They wanted his life and his power, but they didn't want him to live in them. So he's telling his disciples, he's breaking bread with them, right? Then he washes their feet. This is Easter. The king of glory, Jesus, washes his disciples' feet, including Judas, who would betray him. We have a hard enough time being nice to the nice people. <laughs> right? Being good to the good people being thankful to those who deserve thanks. Jesus is washing the feet. He's the king, and he's washing the feet, and he's washing the feet of his betrayer. You know what he says? He says, I'm a servant. People don't come to Jesus because they think that he wants to take from them. He says, my church is taken from you. I'm going to whip them out of this building because they need to be blessing you. He don't want to take nothing from you. He wants to give you life. So he tells his disciples, this is who we're going to be. We're going to serve. We're going to wash feet. We're going to be humiliated, and we're not going to avenge ourselves. This is Easter, church. He's betrayed by Judas, 
for 30 pieces of silver, and the Bible says that Satan entered Judas. Read your Bible. It wasn't just he was bad. It was that Satan entered him. Sin is the acceptance of Satan and his will and desire for your life. Satan entered him. There's no vacant soul. There's no vacant body. Either it's filled with God and the presence of the Spirit of God, or it's filled with the enemy. It's not great news if you don't know who he is, but the good news is he's always available. So the church, after the betrayal, they hold an illegal trial in the middle of the night when they're not supposed to be having trials. Read through your Gospels. It says that some of the church folks came like, what are we doing? How are we having an illegal trial in the middle of the night to, to, uh, to crucify this man? He should be represented. The other members of the council should be here. They have an illegal trial, and they want to kill him. And because they want to kill him and they can't, the Bible declares that they have to go to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and say, kill him for us. This is Easter. Imagine the one who created man is being murdered by man. Pilate doesn't want to crucify him. You know why? Because Pilate can't find anything wrong with him. He's like, this man does not deserve to die, but he's 50-50. He says, I'm going to send him to Herod, another ruler, and maybe he'll sentence him. Herod doesn't want to sentence him because Jesus ignores him. He comes back to Pontius Pilate. He says, what do you want me to do? I'll release one to you. They say, give us the murderer. Give us Barabbas. They release Barabbas, and then Pontius Pilate, he was so close to having Christ. He was right there. And you know what the Bible says? He says, look, I'm going to let you crucify him, but it's going to be on you. It's not going to be on me. He grabs water, and he washes his hands. Please let me tell you, you cannot wash your hands of the blood of Jesus. Either you side with him, and you set him free in your life, or you crucify him. There is no washing our hands and being neutral. Pontius Pilate washes his hands. can't be neutral. You can't be neutral. So they send him to be beaten. They send him to be scourged. He's scourged beyond recognition. Can't even tell who he is. Ripping his flesh off of his body. He's on his cross. He said this in John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. He's on the cross and he's lifted up, but what he's saying is, I have to do this. I want to do this. You know why? Because if I'm lifted up, I'll draw everybody to me. They'll see me for who I am and they'll come to me. So he's lifted up on the cross. It's 12 noon. Say noon. Middle of the day. Sun as bright as it possibly gets. From 12 to 3, the Bible declares that it goes pitch black all over the world. Again, he has power over nature. God is saying this is the darkest moment in all of human history, and you're going to feel it, and you're going to see it. 12 noon. Imagine walking out of church right now, and it just goes black. We ain't talking about an eclipse. We're talking about the absence of light. This is Easter. This is the part I want to focus on, I want to close with this morning. Matthew 27, after all those things. Matthew 27, verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. 
Immediately, one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He says, God, my father, why have you forsaken me? Imagine being with your father from eternity past. There was no year one. There was no beginning. When he created the heavens and the earth, that's not the beginning of what God is and who he is and how long he's been around. They've never been separated except for that one moment when Jesus took my sins on him. He takes my sins on the cross and the father turns his head from him. Because he was sinless and perfect and now he's carrying mine and he's carrying yours. He says, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Number one, on Easter, Jesus yielded up his spirit. To yield is to give someone else the right of way. You come up to a, to a corner where there's no stop sign, right? It just says yield. That means you give somebody else the right of way. You let somebody else go. You let somebody take your road, right? He laid down his life for us, and he gave the right of way to proceed in his righteousness, Right? He's the righteous one. He's always on the path. He's always on the road to the Father. And then he sees us coming, and he yields to us and says, you can take my path. You can move in my righteousness. You can go to a place that you could not go without me. I yield my spirit up. He says, nobody took it from me. I gave it to you guys. His life was anything but taken from him. If there's one thing you remember about Easter, he was not killed. He was not murdered. He gave his life for us. It's one thing to say, I died for them, I was murdered, and then, you know, this is the, no, it's not like that. He knew what he was doing from eternity past. John 10, 17, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. That's the words of Jesus. I lay it down, and I'm taking it back up. Matthew 27, 50, we'll go on with the story again. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Number one, he yields his life, right? He yields his life for you and I. Number two, Easter gives access and division. Easter gives access and division. The veil that was torn in the temple, there used to be a veil that said man can only come this far. They'll never be able to get into the presence of God. So there was a veil separating them, right? It's the same idea when somebody gets married and they have a veil in front of their face. There's a separation between the man and the woman, right? And until something is accomplished, until vows and commitments are made on both parties, that veil is not removed. There's a veil in the temple, and it says that when he breathed his last, the veil literally was torn in two, giving us access to the Holy of Holies where, to, where God actually sits. But until something happens, until there is a covenant, until both parties commit and agree to it, you cannot remove the veil. Right? He tears it down and he says, listen, I'm committed to you. I yield my life for you. If you'll give your life to me, come into the presence of God. Come into the presence of God. We kicked you out of the garden because you had sin. I'm washing you now with my blood so that you can be sinless. Come in, come in, come in. This is Easter. There's also division. It says not only was the temple veil torn in two, but it says that the rocks were split. It reminds me that even though there's been access given, there's going to be division, right? You still have to choose which group of people you want to live in. Those who accept Jesus and those that don't. 
the veil's torn and access is there, but you're either going to go in or you're going to stay out. This is Matthew 10, 32. Listen to what Jesus says. You're almost done. This is it. Matthew 10, 32. Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess them before my Father who's in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I'll also deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds life, finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Access and division. He says, look, I don't care who you live with. I don't care where they're going or what they want to do. I don't care if they said, hey, that's not what I committed to when we got married. I don't care if they said, look, we're going to live this way and we're going to continue to live this way. Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. You're going to either choose me or you're going to choose them. You're either going to choose heaven or you're going to choose hell. You're either going to take up your cross and follow me or you're going to follow the world. He says, there are not multiple options. You get two. This is Easter. The rocks are split. So finally, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, verse 50, yielded up his spirit. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the Son of God. These are non-believers who are guarding the tomb and say, look, we know the truth. This is the Son of God. So the last one, number three, Easter is the beginning of Christians literally living beyond the grave. Literally living beyond the grave. With Adam, God told him, if you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. They ate of the fruit, and we seem like there's no consequence because they kept physically living, but they had spiritually died. Now, you fast forward to, to the son of obedience, right? He dies, and, and physical bodies that are dead receive spiritual life and begin to live again. The Bible says that for 40 days after Jesus rose from the grave, he walked around talking to people with holes in his hands. And you know what he told them? Read your Bible that says he talked to them about the kingdom of God. That's all he cares about. I want you to be blessed. I want you to be restored. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to be set free. I want all the things that God has begun to do in my life and more. I want all that for everybody. But honestly, I just want you to understand and enter into the kingdom. It'd be better to be that poor beggar that when he died, he went into the arms of Abraham than to get everything you want here and not enter the kingdom. As crazy it is to think that Jesus walked around talking to people, I think it's actually crazier that dead people rose out of their graves and began to walk around the city of Jerusalem. This morning I was in a cemetery here in Brea. They called me and asked me if I would come be a part of a sunrise service. I was just talking to some folks about the cemetery and how I feel about it, but I love Jesus, so wherever they want me to go, I'll go. And we were there, and, uh, and we prayed, and we talked, and we shared 
And there was a good amount of people that came out for sunrise service, 6.30 this morning. And uh, I thought to myself, though, imagine if the power of God that we saw on this day came today. And people started getting out of their graves. We'd lose our minds. I'd be the first running. Don't get me wrong. But you could follow me. You're going to make it to safety. But could you imagine, when you read the Bible, don't think of it as, it's not just some stories to make you think about stuff. It's real. It says that, and I love this, because when you read through it, you don't really catch it, I, I don't know, the first time. But what it says is, at the resurrection. The whole story is about the crucifixion, isn't it? And he's on the cross, and he breathes his last. And when they tell the story, it sounds like there's an earthquake, and the, and the veil is torn, and people can enter in. And then right away, bodies come up, but the bodies don't come up right away. At the resurrection, people begin living beyond the grave. Three days later, when he rises, they rise. I know that God doesn't make mistakes. I know that God knows everything that's going to happen. But somewhere in my heart, I believe that God was surprised. I could picture this. The love of God, the power of the resurrection, right? Raising him out of the grave three days later, the rock is moved. He comes walking out, and dead bodies start fall, are coming up out of the ground. I can picture Jesus being like, oh, my bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? You cannot control the power of God, the love of God, and the resurrection of God. You can't control it. You cannot control it. You can tell God, I just want to be fixed up a little bit. I just want to get rid of this relationship. I just want to stop getting high. I just want to get my mind right. No, no, no. You cannot control the love and the power of God. If you give your life to him, expect some things to die and expect some things to be resurrected that you didn't know existed. Worship team, would you come? What's the last song we did? I'm the pastor. I never know the name of the songs. No, I want, um, no, that's not it. Nope. You got to give me some lyrics. Forever he's glorified. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. That's the one I want. That's the one I want. We make up our own name. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. And dead people began to rise. Dead people began to rise. Christians began to live beyond the grave. Why don't we stand? This is Easter. It's one day, but I'm telling you, church, I thought about it. I knew I was going to see some faces I haven't seen in a while. I knew I was going to see some new faces. Of all days, if you're here this morning, man, we'd love for you to make this a place that you can, you can stay but the resurrection, the power of the resurrection is something that you need to receive today and, and on Easter and all those great things. But it should empower you every day of your life, every situation, every circumstance that you go through, throughout every week, throughout every trial, throughout every tribulation. There's more to learn. There's more to see. There's more to receive from God. As we began service, I struggled when we got to this song. I began to, to weep just because I thought to myself, 
man, I'm trying so hard, God. I'm trying so hard to do it right. I'm trying so hard to honor you. I'm trying so hard to, to live for you. But I fall short. I fall short. I do things I shouldn't do. I say things I shouldn't say. I behave in a way that I shouldn't behave. And I was, I was frustrated with myself. But then I just felt God telling me, like, it's about me. It ain't about what you do. It wasn't about what you could do before you got saved. And it ain't about what you can do after you get saved. It's all about me. It's all about my power. It's all about me carrying the burdens. It's all about me conquering death. It's all about me saying, sin, you will not have dominion over his life. Stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about me. And I just wept and I just wept and I just wept. Because his love is so good. His forgiveness is, 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 it reaches so far. Why don't we bow our heads? Why don't you close your eyes? If you don't know him here in this place this morning, you know of him. You may be a longtime church member, heads bowed, eyes closed. You may be your first time in church. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that you know. You know whether you know him or not. I want you to think about when he instituted communion and he told his disciples, you've got to take this bread and you've got to take this blood and you've got to get it all the way inside of you. I have to live in you. If you're here this morning and you know that that's not true, maybe you've held back, maybe you want it and it just hasn't happened yet, maybe you've never seen Christ the way that he wants to be seen, maybe you don't understand, you didn't understand the kingdom before this morning, whether you understand it or not, it's true. All you have to do is make a decision. The clouds are not going to part. Lightning is not going to strike. There will not be another resurrection of somebody to come and tell you and to put a drop of water on your tongue. That is not how it works. What the Word says, the Bible says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. All you've got to do is say, I want to be saved. I know who you are, Jesus. Come live inside of me. Forgive me of my sins, and I promise you he will send you confirmation. Listen to the stories of other Christians. My story is that on, on October 21st, 2004, I did exactly that. Literally three days later, Sunday, the 24th, I felt in a church service physical burdens come off of me. It wasn't the moment that I gave my life to him. It was three days later he confirmed and said, I want you to know I'm real. I want you to know I heard you. I want you to know that my son's blood has now washed you clean. I want you to know that your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Now start living beyond the grave. Start living beyond the grave. Make a decision this morning. Don't think about who's here. Don't think about who you came with. Don't think about tomorrow. Understand there's a kingdom, there's heaven, there's hell. Jesus says, I came with a sword. Make your decision. If you want Jesus... Just raise your hand. I see you. Anybody else? I want Jesus. Today's my day. I'm making my decision. I'm going with Jesus. I will not deny him, and I know he won't deny me before the Father. I see you guys. You can put your hands down. Anybody else? Today's your day. Give your life to Jesus. He's real. He's risen. He's alive. What the Bible says is that he sits at the right hand of the Father right now. He's looking down in this room and saying, who will decide for me? I yielded for them. Who will come to me? Anybody else? Just raise your hand where you are before we move on. Anybody else this morning? Amen. I see you, brother. Nothing matters more. 
Nothing matters more. You can put your hands down. If you're here and you know the Lord, but you've been far from him and you want to rededicate your life today, Resurrection Sunday, would you raise your hand? You just want to be back where you need to be. You want to be close to him again. You want to walk with him. You want to be uh, filled with his spirit. You want to be empowered. You're tired of being defeated. You're tired of living your Christianity in the grave and you want to start living beyond the grave. If that's you, would you raise your hand? You're ready just to move forward with God. You're ready to make it real and not just something you talk about something you try to teach the kids, but it's real for you. Anybody else? I see you guys. Anybody else? Thank you, God. Thank you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for those that that gave your life to the Lord this morning. I'm going to pray for those that just want to press back in. Then I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to just worship. After I'm done praying, you can fellowship. You can hang out. You can worship. If you want prayer, if you have questions, maybe you're close. Maybe you feel the Lord knocking at, your, at the door of your heart and you're close, but, but you want to talk, I'm here. Don't feel pressured. You can come and talk to me. I'm going to be here after service. If you want prayer, you can come forward. You can come to the altar. I want you to re- everybody to remember this, and I'm going to pray. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out. It was to let you in. A few minutes later, it says that he appeared in a room with the doors locked. He was just there. He met two men walking on the road to Emmaus. He was just there. He saw the disciples back on Galilee fishing. He was just there. He goes where he wants. He does what he pleases. He is the king. The reason the stone was rolled away is not so he could get out. It's so you and I can come in, lay your life down, die to your old life, and be resurrected. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that you're the way. We thank you that you're the life. We thank you that the stone was rolled away, that you would allow us to come in, that we would be able to die with you and be raised in newness of life with you, God. We ask for those that gave their life to you, Lord, fill them with your spirit. Give them confirmation that it wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't just an Easter day. It wasn't just an emotional decision. They know that their sins need to be forgiven and that blood has to be shed. It'll either be their blood at the last day or they can be washed and passed over because of your blood. Give them confirmation. Get them into their word, Father God. Get them dialed in and locked in, Lord, with those that would encourage them. We ask that you would hold the enemy at bay. We know angels and demons are real and they come against us. They come against our family. They come against our children. They come against our destiny. But greater are you that's in us than he who's in the world this morning, God. Lord, fill them afresh with your spirit, those that rededicated themselves. Get them out of the grave, Lord, and get them on to living beyond the grave, God. We come to the altar. We sing hallelujah. We praise you for who you are. We lay our burdens down, and we leave this place with your peace, with your presence, and with your joy. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen. Listen, happy Easter. Enjoy your friends and your family. Again, if you're new, please let somebody get your information. But if you need prayer, the altars are open and we can worship. Thank you, Lord.